This morning we're going to start with a hypothetical story. The story's got two characters in it, a single mom and her only son. The single mom recognizes and has one wish for her son, and that is that her son can have access to an education that she never had, perhaps to embedder him into a situation uh, that she didn't, wasn't provided with. So from early on in the boy's life, she uh, makes sacrifices towards that aim. She begins to work a second job. She takes any additional shifts or hours that she can get. And she's funneling all that into a college education savings fund. You know, she does things even as severe as eating nothing but ham and cheese sandwiches for lunch, right? Instead of going out to eat with her coworkers. Why? That's a couple more dollars into the fund. Maybe even goes as drastically as so far as teaching herself how to cut her own hair so she doesn't have to pay for a salon. Again, sacrifices, whatever sacrifice she can so that she can provide her son with an education she didn't have. So that's our first character. Our next character is the son. He was grateful to his mom for this gift because at the time of his graduation, now he gets to go off to college and with four years of tuition paid for. And so he rightly applies himself and wants to study hard so that by his work and by his study, he can show and prove the gift that he was given. So he hits the books. Anytime there's an extra tutoring session, he's there. Anytime there's extra credit, he takes it. Anytime there's more homework to done, he's faithful in completing it. This all makes sense, maybe up until now, but let's say this, this son carries it out a little bit too far. Let's say he wants to give up on all personal relationships that serve as a distraction towards his study. Let's say he looks at time and investment with people as something that will only come in the way of him accomplishing his aim, which is to do and to get the grade so that it can reflect back on his mom. Let's say he takes this to a far extreme, and even in the personal relationship of a distraction, he sees the investment in his mom as such a distraction. So he stops writing her letters. He no longer calls home. He doesn't go to visit. For as far be it, he visits his mom, and it distracts him from his purpose, which is to get the grade, to achieve, so that he can prove the hard work and the sacrifice of his mom. Now, of course, we think at this point hearing this even hypothetical situation, we clearly identify the mom as the hero, and we see the son responding to the heroic work in the beginning seemingly is normalized, right? It would be normal for him want to do the right things and get the grades so that he doesn't let his mom down. But the problem is, is he carried it out in an extreme. He thought that the only way to prove his mother's love for him and the gift that she had given was by achieving something on his own merit. He sought his performance and grades, but missed her provision based in love. If you were here with us last week, this was Nicodemus. This is who we considered when we had opened up this small series on the encounters with Jesus, being introduced to some characters along the way and some conversations that were had. Last week, we studied the person of Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night Entirely convinced that it was about what he had to offer. That his religion was going to get him in. That it was by his work and his merit that he was going to prove God's faithfulness. Based on what he could accomplish. That was what Nicodemus came in with. And that was faulty of Nicodemus. And it was quickly in meeting, the, meeting Jesus. Jesus presents him with the great truth. You have the knowledge, Nicodemus, but you need the Savior. 
Whereas Nicodemus thought he could find his own way through religion, Jesus pointed it's more about a relationship. This will be the same story, and actually a parallel story we'll run into next week as we start on chapter 4 with uh, the woman at the well. You see, the woman at the well and Nicodemus' stories have a lot of overlap, especially in their theme and then their main purpose, because both of them are ultimately about it's not what you can do for yourself, but only you who are desperate on God who can achieve it. You know, Nicodemus found that in his religion in academia. We'll see next week that the woman at the well finds her provision in the worldly things or what she thinks she can attain. But both of these stories have the same application. We need to get out of the way so that he can be the way. Our dependence on self is fruitless. Our dependence on him is foremost. These are the two stories that have the parallel meanings, both with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, And so naturally, you would think that as you're reading through, if such parallels existed, that the Apostle John, the author of this gospel reading through, would just then jump from one to the other, that he would finish his conversation about Nicodemus, and then he'd go straight into the one, the woman on the well. But it isn't what happens. Instead, we get another dialogue introduced to us this morning. At the end of chapter 3, we run again, or at least are reintroduced to the character of John the Baptist. Now again, we got to remember some of John's purpose for writing this book, is that the Apostle John wants to highlight the deity of Jesus. And he does so by recalling these interactions or encounters or conversations. And uh, it's probably likely that John writes his gospel after all the other gospels at the prompting of the Ephesian elders, the church he's ministering to, that come to him and say, hey, tell us more about this. Write this stuff down. Maybe this is why he pins at the end of the gospel. If I if I, no library is big enough and expansive in all the world to handle everything of which Jesus accomplished. Because what John does is through his gospel, he's recalling these memories. He's recalling these dialogues. And through dialogue, he presents theology. And so I think we have to see this. Is why does John take a break and a natural connection between two dialogues only to introduce a third character? I think it is because what John the Baptist ennobilizes best, what we saw him in chapter 1 do, is what we need him to do again here in chapter 3, is that what he embodies for us and what he demonstrates to us, I think, is humility. And I think humility is going to be the key to how we understand the two stories How do we get out of the way so he can be the way? How does we realize that a dependence on self is fruitless, but a dependence on him is foremost? You know, again, we've already seen John in chapter one, but we didn't read it together. Uh, So as a quick highlight, here's some of the ways that John seems to describe himself. In verse eight, he says, I am not the light. In verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. In verse 21, he says, I'm not even Elijah nor the prophet. In verse 23, he says, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. In 27, he says, I'm not even worthy to unstrap Jesus' sandals. In verse 30, he makes it clear that he ranks well below Jesus. You see, I think John's defining character trait is his humility. He's doing great work. He's got a great ministry. So great that people are coming to him that he feels like he has to clarify, it's not about me. I'm not the one. I only come pointing to the one to come. He has to deny and take this humble stance. Not because, again, the work that he's doing is of humble origins, but rather, it's just not his, and he recognizes that. 
You know, when I think about humbleness as a trait, I'm reminded of uh, an, an old story of D.L. Moody, um, perhaps the, um, most, uh, the well, most well-known and greatest uh, evangelist and Bible teacher of the late 1800s. Um, this was a man of God who uh, became world-renowned, known for his Bible teaching. Um, and in fact, uh, in the college that he was teaching at, he would host these Bible conferences where people would literally come from all across the world just to hear him preach. And one such time, and at one such one of these events, uh, a whole group of pastors came from Europe, all the way from Europe to Central North America, just to hear D.L. Moody preach. Now, again, that was a much bigger sacrifice back in the 1800s than it was today. And so we know the great occasion, that this is how much they valued his teaching. And so D.L. Moody, uh, who had arranged with the college to put all of these um, European pastors up in the dormitory to sleep, began walking the halls of the school's dormitory and praying for those men uh, that they may encounter God rightly through his teaching the next day. And he noticed upon something when doing this, he noticed that um, per the European custom, that all of these European pastors had took off their dirty shoes, muddy, dirty, worn, scuffed, from travel-worn shoes, from all of this travel, and they had placed them outside of the door to be cleaned by the servants while they went in and slept. Now, this was a custom and was a notable thing and was common practice in Europe, but wasn't the case in America. Dale Moody sees this, and he, of course, rightly points out to his colleagues and to students that this, is a faux pas, this cultural faux pas is happening right now. They're going to be really disappointed in the morning. Now, to his dismay, none of his colleagues or students tend to do anything about it, so what does D.L. Moody do? He walks the hall and he collects all those shoes, and he takes them back to his room. Instead of studying or instead of sleeping and being well prepared for the next morning, he stays up well, well late into the middle of the night, cleaning and polishing the shoes of the men who have come to hear him teach. I think this is a demonstration of humility that one we wouldn't even know about if it wasn't for a friend who happened to walk in on D.L. Moody doing this and later recalled the story after his death, pointing to how humble of a man he was. For you see, D.L. Moody's humility wasn't based in his lack of ability, but rather it was rightly seen in his correct place, his correct statue. It wasn't that D.L. Moody had nothing to boast about, rather he knew of someone much greater and worthy to boast in. I think of the same thing as John the Baptist. We see John the Baptist having a ministry where he rightly understood he was just there to proclaim of the one to come. His entire message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And so he took every opportunity to point to Jesus. And so I think this is why he shows up again. This is why he is the bridge character between our two stories. It's because when we need to get out of the way so he can be the way, when we need to realize that self-reliance is fruitless and that reliance upon him is foremost, we must understand the right character in which to go about that application is humility. So let's look down at our text this morning and see what we can glean from John the humble, the messenger. We're going to be in John chapter 3, verse 21. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Um, if you've got a digital Bible, you can navigate over to the ESV version. That's what we're going to be reading out of. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look down in the pure, uh, into the chair racks underneath you and pull one of those Bibles out. Um, we'll be on page 888. Um, and I will say, if you don't have a Bible that you can call your very own, please take that one as a gift from us to you. Well, let's look down in John chapter 3, verse 21. 
We're going to start with the verse, actually, if you notice, this is the verse from the previous section. This is the tail end of John describing or giving the application, applicational thought, per the conversation of Nicodemus. But it's one that I think reveals a key aspect of humility. Look down in verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is a key aspect of humility, that his works are carried out in God. It's not that his works are carried out in his own strength. It's not that his works are carried out in his own plans. But it is his works are carried out by God, in God. I think the truth that we must recognize here is that right living, right living comes only from the empowerment of God. God empowers right living. And I think when we recognize our right place, that this is only coming from God, I think that is a true marker of humility. This is what the Apostle Paul says in first, uh, um, I'm sorry, in Colossians chapter 1, the first chapter of Colossians, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Again, from the verse that we've, verses that we've been looking through in the second chapter of Philippians, he says, for it is God who works in you, in verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that we must see a key aspect of humility is that God is the one who empowers right living. Thus, any sign of humbleness in my life, any sign of humbleness in your life, any sign of humbleness by any believer comes not from their own merit, but from God working a miracle, doing something miraculous. Whereas human efforts would have failed, God accomplishes what he will and what he works in us. And I think this is going to be a key note of humility. I would say it even so much as this. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, oh great, another sermon about humility. I've come across this time and time again, and I know that I am a proud person. I am prideful. That's just who I am. And there's nothing I can do about that. Part of me would say, amen. You're exactly right. There is nothing you can do about this. But the good news is, is that once again, in your hopelessness, there is one with hope. Because it isn't what you do, it is what he does. And so we must rightly see as we enter into this conversation about humility that it isn't our own work that accomplishes this, but one that is desperate on God who empowers humility. You know, when I was thinking about this, uh, I, I had thought of a story. Um, one morning as I was getting ready for, uh, uh, for work, getting changed in my closet, uh, Madeline, my four-year-old, walked in and she always asks every morning, Daddy, where are you going? 95% of the time my answer is, I'm going to work, baby. And so that was what it was again. Uh, she asked, where are you going today? And I said, I'm going to work. She says, no, you're not. And I'm like, really? Oh, teach me then, wise Madeline. Why am I not going to work today? She goes, Daddy, those aren't your work clothes. And I was like, well, yeah, actually, you're kind of right, Madeline, because uh, I was putting on shorts and an t- athletic polo t-shirt because that day for work, I was invited to represent uh, South Spring um, in a charity golf tournament. So I was actually going to play golf. I was working, but I was going to play golf, and Madeline rightly realized, you don't go to work wearing that nice of shirts. Yes, you're right. So I tried to pull one over on you. So then I explained to her that I'm going to play golf, and she asked me, what? what is golf? And I'm like, great, another reason, failure as a parent. What am I teaching this child? Okay, so golf, how do I, how do I rectify this? Um, and so we go into the living room, and I actually find whatever I can. I dig through all of our drawers and, and our coffee table, and I pull out two things. I pull out 
uh, Jill's old teacher pointer from when she taught second grade. Uh, and then I pulled out a uh, ping pong ball that had a hand-drawn penguin on it. Why? I don't know. But that was what was in the drawer. And I said, okay, this is what it is, baby. This is what golf is like. You got this club and you got this ball. And I set the ball on the ground. And I said, all right, now watch me, honey. And you take your club and you swing and you hit the ball. And I hit the ball across the room and it hit up onto the couch. And I said, that's kind of golf, as best as I can explain it to you. And she says, great, daddy, can I play golf? And I was like, yes, baby, here, have at it. Here's your golf club. I'm gonna go finish getting ready. And then a couple minutes go by and uh, surprise, surprise, what does Madeline do? She comes back into the closet this time frustrated. She's like, Daddy, I can't do it. I can't play golf. I was like, oh, that's all right, baby. Let me come watch you. Let me see what you're doing. So I walked back out in the living room, and I was like, well, show me what you're doing. And she presents to take the club, line up as I take it. And then in this weird kind of strange hacking motion, nothing like what I taught her, she begins just chopping down at the ground. Half the time missing the ball, the other half the time when she hit it, it would clearly not go in the direction that I hit it in. And so after a couple times of this, I'm seeing the frustration build up in her. She's like, see, Daddy, I can't do it. I was like, oh, that's, you're right. Well, baby, let me show you. So what did I do? I had her line up on the ball again. And then where did I place my arms? I placed my arms around hers, and I stood behind her. And what did I do? I grabbed her hands, and then I was the power, right? I brought her hands backwards, and I brought her hands forward, and she hit the ball across the room onto the couch. And what did, what did sweet Madeline in her excitement proclaim to me? Daddy, look, I did it, right? <laughs> she thought she accomplished this. And whereas I was like, yes, sweetie, you did it. It's cute. I didn't correct any further. What we must really understand is that God is, if God is the one who rightly empowers us, when we take credit for that empowerment, we're like the child taking credit for the source of the swing when it's the parent who's actually controlling our arms. I think this is the right thing that we must understand when it comes to the concept of humility is again, this is a miraculous work, what God accomplishes in us, not one that we merit on our own. Well, let's get back to our story. Understanding this concept of God empowering humility, um, this section about John the Baptist begins in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. And you may see as we pause and get this basic introduction, um, we see the occasion and the setting coming from Jesus has just finished a conversation with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. So now he leaves the city of Jerusalem and goes into the Judean countryside. And there, he is with his disciples, and it is his disciples who are actually baptizing. And this is a key note, and we kind of have to get through some minutiae to rightly understand. Um, but if we would have read, a whole, read ahead in verse uh, 2 of chapter 4, we see that this isn't actually Jesus doing the baptizing. He makes clear there that it's, it's Jesus' disciples here that are doing the baptism. Um, and I think this is important because this is a different type of baptism. Now, some of y'all may have recalled, some of you good Bible students who have been with us recalled maybe last week, um, where in Nicodemus's conversation, Jesus talks about uh, being born again of water and of the Spirit. And then I said that that wasn't a reference to the Christian institution of baptism. That was going to come later. And you may think, well, well, isn't that, what do you mean if it's coming later? Here it is now. No, it's still not here now, even though it kind of looks like it on, 
on the surface, but um, indulge me as we kind of walk through this together. Uh, it, this isn't the Christian institution of baptism. For the Christian institution of baptism comes later with his, the, the ascension of Jesus, where he actually says, you baptize in my name, um, because we have the, the triunal proclamation of who God is and what Jesus has done in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit being the symbol of our salvation. That's the Christian baptism that we baptize in his name. This is why John the Baptist's own disciples have to be re-baptized in Acts. It's because they had a baptism that wasn't founded in the identity of who Jesus was. What the baptism they did and what the baptism here is going on is actually a baptism of repentance. This is a, a precursor to the Christian baptism. Um, this is, we, we know this in a couple different ways. Um, one, because this is exactly what John proclaims in uh, his entire message, is that his proclamation is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what is the sign of your repentance? Your alignment with the need for purification. This is what his disciples are doing. They're baptizing in an alignment of purification. And this is even what I think, and what a lot of commentators and scholars believe, is the exact same baptism that Jesus' disciples are baptizing in. Because we know that this isn't all of Jesus' disciples. Because in Mark um, chapter 1, uh, we see that, uh, that Jesus commissions all of his disciples in, in finality and in fullness uh, at, after uh, John the Baptist is put in prison. That's why we have this weird verse in um, chapter 24 that says he hasn't been put in prison yet. kind of seems like, a well, duh, he's not in prison because he's in the countryside. Well, no, that's actually to help us with this chronology. And so what we really get here is we're seeing that that. Some of Jesus' disciples are going out into the wilderness and are also baptizing. Well, where do these disciples come from? Well, in John chapter 1, we were already introduced to that concept as well again. Because when John the Baptist makes the proclamation of who Jesus is on the public ministry of who he is and what he is doing, some of John's disciples then leave and go and follow Jesus. And so I think it is that these disciples that are going out and doing the ministry, that John had showed them the same baptism, a call for repentance. Now this time pointing that the kingdom of heaven is here and it's found in that guy. Let us repent and show your repentance through purification. This would have made sense in a more uh, in-lined, conducive Jewish audience because to the Jewish audience, um, the baptism of repentance uh, was, was very uh, akin or alike um, the ritualistic cleansings that the Jewish faith had in the Old Testament. Because there's two types of ritualistic washings. One, the Tevelah, which is um, the full body immersion in the mikvah bath. That one probably would have been very similar to the baptism that they're doing. Um, and the Netalat Yadayim, which is a ceremonial washing of hands, which we see also come up a couple times in the New Testament. But both of these things come in the Jewish culture with a confession and repentance, a proclamation that they need cleansing, and then that will come. And what John is saying as a Jew to Jews is he is saying, yes, repent, recognize that you need purification, you need cleansing, and that will come in the work of what Jesus does. I think this alignment of purification is why we see this disagreement actually happen here in the next verse. Look back down in uh, verse 25 of chapter 3. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over what? Purification. That's right. Because I think they were performing this 
symbol of hopeful purification. And so a Jew is having this discussion about, with John's disciples, about that purification. Now, it's interesting. We don't really address, or at least John's disciples, when they address John, don't point to the purification, but point to probably something that motivated the conversation behind purification. Because he says this, verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you, Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, Jesus, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So what is likely happening is that the debate is, hey, you're baptizing in the form of purification. And Jesus' disciples who used to follow you, they're baptizing in a sign of purification. But more people are over there. So which purification is better? Is that one better? Is this one better? The disciples of John have this moment of insecurity and bring it to their rabbi, their teacher, and say, so what is it? Is it is that ours isn't as good as theirs because there's more people over there? And John, of course, responds to this with a very humble and right response. But I think it's important for us to note a key trait about humility is not only that God empowers humility, but that the greatest enemy of humility is comparison. And when we compare We make it about us in the equation. This is what John's disciples were doing, is they were comparing work and worried about their ego. Again, if humility is recognizing that you're not a part of the equation, then comparison, assuming you are part of the equation, is a lie. Instead of focusing on the light, we're focusing in on our fragile egos. That's what we do when we compare. There's a speaker and an, and an author named Carrie Ann Hahn who uh, had a beautiful quote about comparison, really covetousness, um, and how it isn't uh, a desirable or doesn't lead to truthful things. She has a longer quote. I'm going to read you the whole thing so you can really see the context, but the end is what I find particularly beautiful. She says this, but because comparison is woven into fallen human nature, it is woven into God's word again and again. It's a pretty big deal when the only commandment of the 10 that deals directly with a heart issue, she's saying rather than the other nine that are just expressions of the heart, but the only one that deals directly with a heart issue focuses squarely on the issue of covetousness, whether it is coveting somebody's spouse, house, or anything that belongs to him. This is a beautiful ending. Put comparison and sinful flesh together, and more often than not, they'll birth the baby of covetousness. And here's what we have again. We have John's disciples comparing. Comparing standing as a way to undo humility, to not see that this isn't about you, but to think you have something to play in this occasion. And this is how John responds, is by again being who John the Baptist is, the great herald, the great messenger, the great humble man. Because look at what he says, verses 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Again, we're seeing now John standing with the humble reply. As his disciples were tempted to compare, John says, no. The right answer is our right status. And he gives this humble reply, it's not about me. That in fact, everything that I am given is given to me from God. How could I take any credit for it? 
But then John goes on to illustrate, and we see a byproduct of humility. That is so interesting here. Look down at what he says. Uh, He gives this illustration in verse 29. John's talking, and he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The great proclamation of a humble servant is that he must increase, I must decrease. This story of this idea of a bride and a groom and the bridegroom's friend, this title, this is actually the title of the bridegroom's friend, uh, is something that we're culturally aware of, that would be culturally aware of the Judeans of the time as well. Um, because in a wedding party, and you had the bride and you had the groom, and the groom had groomsmen. And those grooms, groomsmen played a role. They oftentimes were key um, participants to prepare for the wedding ceremony, or even so often would come alongside even the groom and help him prepare his house as he was building it to welcome in the bride. They had a part, but what John is clearly saying is that they have to remember their part and remember where their part came from. Because it would be inappropriate that if the friend, the groomsman, had done all this work, and then upon the day that the bride starts coming down, he says, yes, finally my day is here. I've done all this work, and then now here comes my bride. Doesn't work like that. I'd be very mad at the four groomsmen who stood in my wedding if they thought that, right? It doesn't work this way because it makes sense that they had a role, and their role wasn't so that they receive the bride, but they got to play a part so that the groom received the bride. And so when they naturally see that they get to play a part of that, instead of comparing and thinking of themselves receiving the short end of the stick for all their labors, rather, they're filled with joy. They rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I think this is the result of humility. The byproduct of humility is joy. And John talks about this joy so beautifully. This joy is not incomplete. This joy is complete. It is full word here means it needs nothing more. This is an all-consuming, all-present joy. There's nothing you could add to it. You see, I think this is the great thing about God who empowers us to be humble. Also, then we get to benefit by that because then when we are empowered to be humble, we are found in a state of joy, the fullest joy. What a gift. So again, in review of humility is the If humility's enemy is comparison, then we also know that humility's product is joy. This would make sense then why, for those who are students of the uh, presidents, uh, the the great Theodore Roosevelt had coined the term, comparison is the thief of joy, because he was putting these products together. Now, whereas President Roosevelt wasn't necessarily talking about humility in this stance, what he was doing is he was applying the principles that we've just seen here in Scripture. Because if the solution... To avoid being compared is by remaining humble, and we see that the byproduct of being humble is the production of joy, and we see that humility is the thread in the line of these two things. And similarly, humility is the thread between the story of Nicodemus and the story of the woman at the well. If we are to rightly see ourselves before an almighty God, we must understand our place. And any participation of righteousness or of his work is a gift from him, not something we can boast about. So the application point, of course, is obvious. So how do you remain humble? 
How do you remember where you are? How do you remember where he is? This is how John puts remembering his place, at least in the next verse of verse 31. He says this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways, but he who comes from heaven is above all. When he's realizing, he's recognizing that, again, a main part of the Apostle John is that Jesus has deity, that Jesus comes from above, that he is below and Jesus is above. But what is the beautiful picture of the one who wants to empower us to remember that, empower us to remember humility is that we are at a low status and he is at a high status, is that the one who is above came down to below. The one from heaven came to earth. He is the great inspiration of humility and the very model of humility for us. This is what we've been talking about. This is what John recited to us before we read Philippians together, right? Back in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not yours because of yours. It's not yours because of the work we do. It is yours because God empowers it. It is in Christ Jesus, who though in the very form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, the incarnation, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The reason why Jesus can empower humility is because Jesus embodies humility as part of his very nature. As being in, witnessed in his incarnation, we see Jesus embodying humility, a lowering of himself. You may not be familiar with what does that term incarnation mean, uh, but if we break it down to the simple root, I think we get to it, right? Because the root form of incarnation just simply means carne, a word that we see maybe every time we're in the uh, grocery aisle looking at a can of chili, right? Because what, is, what does chili mean, all you men who love chili? Chili con carne, chili with meat, praise the Lord, right? That's why we eat chili con carne and not the other chili, because it doesn't represent uh, the divinity of God in the same way in our lives, correct? <laughs> so what is, what is Jesus' incarnation? It is, it is Jesus as God con carne, Jesus God with meat, he is found in man. How about that for some East Texas good old boy theology this morning? Now, I say that in jest, but I think the point is clear. That the creator became the creation. That the omnipresent came to a place. And having the constant praise of angels and the adoration and worship of those who are surrounded by the throne, he chooses to give up that so that he can be mocked and abused by sinners he's come to save. That the king of kings gives up his throne choosing rather a cross to die for those in need of his kingdoms. This is one of the great reasons why I think the Bible is true. Because you and I couldn't make up a God like this. This is a beautiful counterculture, counterintuitive God that sets Christianity apart. As we have a humble God, worthy of all praise, yet chosen at the same time to demonstrate humility. So I think that can be our prayer today. May we be desperate for him. May we recognize our hopelessness so that we turn to him as hope in our Savior. And may we live humbly, recognizing it's not by our own merit, but a work in him and his work he's accomplishing so that we can be a testimony to others. So how do you remain humble? 
Maybe more fitting, another pastor put it as this. In answering the reply, he said, I remain humble by remembering that I am a kite and Jesus is a hurricane. Within such powerful, turbulent winds, even a broken, damaged, beat up, an otherwise useless kite in any other condition, under those circumstances, even it flies pretty well. I think that's the right thing as we understand we shouldn't be a part of this equation. At any comparison, puts us in that equation and violates that truth. Rather, it is Jesus who empowers us to be humble. And he only is able to do that because of the witness of how he himself embodies humility in the incarnation. So I think that is our call, is that we must turn to Jesus to ask this great work in our lives. The empowering of humility, and then by receiving that, the participation in an unending joy, a complete joy, one that isn't lacking. So as John comes back up and leads us in a time of invitation, I think it would be appropriate for us to ask ourselves that question, where am I still not living this out? Where are the areas of pride in my life? Where am I still comparing, finding not joy, but insatisfaction? I think we should give those things over to the Lord and ask, being desperate upon Him to provide that in us. The great stance that we saw ultimately with Nicodemus, and we will see ultimately at the end of the woman at the well, being desperate for that personal relationship in us. And I'll challenge you that if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know, honestly, I can't think of a single thing in which I can grow in my humility, then maybe you need to ask yourself the first question. Perhaps you haven't even asked him to come in and save you in your hopelessness. Maybe you're blind because you're still hopeless. If you never put your faith in Jesus, then today could be the day of salvation, and that's what I would invite you to. Or perhaps it's that you want to gather with a bunch of other people who are prideful and are desperate for God to enact right living in our lives and you want to join and be a part of this church, then now if you've had a conversation with Lance or somebody else, you can come forward at this time. But whatever it is, however you need to reply, and I'll let you stand and do due diligence as we sing together.